0: This is PodQuest with your host, David Marlowe. Well, welcome to PodQuest. My guest today describes himself as a professional comedy writer, but an amateur father of four girls, which I love. He's also the creative brains behind Exploding Unicorn, which is the family humor Twitter account with over a million followers. I'm one of those. And he's also authored seven books, spanning from humorous parenting guides to science fiction novels, which is really cool. Perhaps though, the most unique creation is his children's book titled "You Can't Be a Pterodactyl." And today, we're going to dive into this charming book, discover the story behind it, and explore the beautiful connection it has to ikigai with author James Brakewell. Welcome, James.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Uh,
0: thrilled, to, thrilled to have you, excited about uh, this chance to talk about You Can't Be a Pterodactyl and a host of other things. Um, I want to start by just say asking you, can you give our listeners a brief overview
1: of the book? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show your fabulous book right here. So it's, it's a children's picture book about a little boy named Tommy who wants to be a pterodactyl when he grows up. And the whole world tells him he can't be a pterodactyl. It does seem like a rather implausible career choice. Everybody tells him he can't except for his dad, who actually, after after other kids make fun of him, his teachers make fun of him, his dad encourages him. And at the end, he does become a version of a pterodactyl, his, his version. He he lives out the spirit of that life. And, uh, and actually, the, in the original version, the original ending I wrote, it was a little bit more surreal. Based on the text I wrote, it was unclear... Whether or not he literally became a pterodactyl, when it got to the publisher, they're like, "Um, you need to you need to clarify what this means exactly." So now it's got it's got the the plausible ending where he's living a pterodactyl life like life, but there's also a final picture where he does kind of look like a pterodactyl. So just never never rule anything out.
0: Oh, that's awesome! What sparked uh, what sparked my interest in it? I'm going to show you the uh, the pterodactyl, but my granddaughter who's five. Uh, loves pterodactyls and this is like her favorite toy and uh not a cute cuddly pterodactyl at all <laughs> but she she assures me this is a, a a nice pterodactyl when she when we play chess she likes to make sure the pterodactyl gets to play chess and so i saw i saw your book and i thought oh this would be great and and bought it and the, the story and the connection to Ikigai, the idea that we are, we are more than our careers. We're more than what we want to be when we grow up. And that encouragement that the father gives really was, was an inspiration to me and, and uh, really encouraged me to reach out to you and talk with you about it. So where did
1: that, where did that idea come from for you? I think it came from watching my own kids and just kids in general, they come up with such, you know, crazy things that they want to do You, you, you below a certain age. Everybody just kind of assumes they're going to be great at anything. You know, they can be, they can be president, they can be astronauts, they can be, you know, all the, all this amazing stuff. Uh, And I, and I I thought, well, let's take that out to the extreme. What about the kid who wants to be a fire truck or something like that? What if they keep that dream a little bit longer? That was the genesis for the book. And I I wrote it relatively quickly. Most of my books, you know, I write these science fiction books that are 90,000, 100,000 words. This is 700 words, the total opposite end of the spectrum. I wrote out the first draft in an hour. And in the first draft, uh the dad was the antagonist. It's a little kid going, I want to do this crazy thing. And the dad's saying, Well, here's why that's impractical. And I, I sat down and looked at it. I thought, this is this is all wrong. There's a whole world of haters and doubters out there. This kid needs one person who believes on in him. And I, I totally flipped the book around based on that one idea and I, I, and I fixed it. And I said, no, dad believes in you no matter what, no matter what everybody else in the world says, as long as you believe in yourself and as long as he believes in you, no, you can do this or you can do a version of this. And so I went through with that second draft and it, and it just worked and I was, I was very happy with how it came out.
0: Oh, wow, that's awesome. And such a great example of, of that level of encouragement uh, that, mm-hmm. that we need. I know um, I'm, I'm a writer today. And, I, uh, as a child, I tell people I want to be a writer and that we well, you, you can't be a writer. It's really hard. And all, all those things you just, <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, yet I am a writer today, but it took me a long time because, you know, those, those young spirits get crushed so easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you have four daughters, which yes, we could probably
1: spend an hour just on that, right? <laughs> what are their ages again? We, right now we've got uh, 13, 11, 9, and 7, and the seven-year-old is just about to turn eight. So this is the easy part of the year where they're all exactly two years apart, and then it'll flip around. But yeah, they're uh they're, they're nice and evenly spaced, every other grade going up, so they can play together, they can fight together, and we've just now, our oldest has just hit her teenage years, and people have been warning me. You know, they're, they're down, mathematically, down the road, there will be one year where all four of them will be teenagers at once. So we'll we'll see how that goes. I'm sure that'll be a book all on its own. Oh
0: my goodness. Well, you've already done one about a parenting in a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> uh, I can only imagine where you could go <laughs> where you could Go with that one.
1: Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm spoiled. They're pretty good kids. I mean, truthfully, I think it, it gets easier as they get older. Yes, you you ask them to do something and rather than a yes or no, you get a, you get a paragraph back. I mean, there is some of that, but at the same time, like you don't have to worry, you know, when you leave the room that they're going to die all of a sudden, you know, now, not only can you leave the room, you can leave the house, you can leave the town, you know, and it's uh it's pretty great. There's no daycare costs anymore. They watch themselves and we come back and they're generally all still alive. So it's work it's working out. Yeah.
0: All right. So, so I mentioned your, your book on the zombie apocalypse and the mm-hmm. other things and i love the wry uh, uh humor you have in exploding your unicorn into into family life i mean just mm-hmm. having four young young children of any kind but close in age and all girls and, and all of that so tell me a little bit about your journey and, and how you've gotten here and maybe how some people have helped you with your uh your pterodactyl
1: moments along the way so instead of being a pterodactyl, I wanted to be the next Dave Barry. That was that was my goal in high school, I decided. I sent out uh, some emails in a computer literacy class. I got some people to laugh at them, and I thought, this is it. This is enough to build a life on. So I, I went to uh, go into journalism in college, and I worked for the student newspaper, got a job at a real newspaper, and I was in journalism for all of a year, and uh, I, I couldn't take it. It was, it was the opposite of funny. There was it was like a rotating column that came around between all the young reporters once every three or four months. But other than that, it was just serious, heartbreaking news. And I realized this, I'm just never going to, I'm never going to get there this way. It turned out later on, I, I never looked at how Dave Barry became Dave Barry. Dave Barry did not work his way up from being like a, a beat reporter. He came in from the outside. So anyway, I gave up my dream a year into being a reporter. I was like, I'm just going to go get a desk job somewhere that's that, you know, I can work daylight hours. I was the night cops reporter at the time. Uh, and earn a decent wage. And I'll just write for fun on the side. And uh, and I'll build up an audience that way. And this was at the height of the blogging era. People were actually making money at it once upon a time. And I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll get it. I'll, I'll be able to write a book someday. I'll build up an audience. And then I'll I'll get to that point where there's so many that uh, so many people reading me that publishers actually want to publish my book. And it, it took a long time. I wrote uh, three or four hundred thousand words on that blog. And I, I thought they were good words. Looking back, they are, they are not so good <laughs> words. So it was probably a, it was probably a blessing that nobody read my stuff back then. I think a big article would have like fifty readers on it most of the time, and uh, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and nobody read me for a decade. And I started I went on Twitter and I thought, hey, you can share links here, and I shared links and nobody clicked on them. I said, okay, I, you have to post original content here too. So in between the links, I started writing jokes. Uh, and Twitter gave me something I didn't get on this blog, where I was talking to no one, just kind of shouting into the void. On Twitter, you get you get a grade; they you get likes and retweets. So you could say, "Oh, this is a good joke. This is a bad joke, or this is one that has an audience, and this is one that doesn't." And through that, I figured out, "Hey, people like jokes about my kids." And I kind of zeroed in on that, and I became the guy who writes kid jokes. I I built up an audience, and then eventually, uh, ten thousand tweets later, uh, BuzzFeed did an article on me with a bunch of clickable links, and I went viral. And uh, at that point, uh, publishers did get in touch with me and they said, hey, you want to write a book? And yeah, they, they wanted me to write a book of tweets. And I said, hey, how about instead I write a parenting guide to the zombie apocalypse?" <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's how I became the mediocre author I am today. I saw, I saw, what was their initial reaction to that? Uh, not a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very fond of that book, but I think they just didn't know how to how to, how to market it in the same way. They wanted, uh, you know, the, the, the William Shatner, uh, sitcom it's based on that book stuff. My dad says, but not stuff, but a, a swear word in there. That's what, that's what they wanted, but they wanted it with tweets. And I just, my tweets, I mean, they're based on reality. They all got that essence of truth, but they're not all true. I mean, I'm, I'm taking that real life situations and, you know, distilling them into 140 characters at the time to make it funny. I was like, I don't, I don't want to be on oprah someday for being a liar so like i just I, I can't i can't put these books in there these tweets in there and say they all happened so that's why i thought you know what rather than lying a little bit let's just lie all the way and, and talk about zombies but then the crazy thing is i wrote this zombie book and it was classified as non-fiction like everywhere it's always in the non-fiction section so i don't know what bookstores know that we don't but uh if i were you watch out for zombies <laughs> that's okay Oh, now what are your, what are your daughters think
0: of this? What do your daughters think of you telling their stories?
1: Well, all kids love attention. So they, uh, all the time they're like, Hey dad, take a picture of this or take a picture of that. Like they, they don't care if I tweet about them. They like, if I take a picture and then I share it and they, they're now at the age where they want me to take a bunch of pictures of them, then they want me now to show them the pictures. So that that's a new development. Uh, the biggest thing is YouTube though, especially my, my younger two, um, well in particular, my nine-year-old, she really likes it. My seven-year-old to some extent. Um, they once introduced uh, me to a new neighbor as uh, my dad's a YouTuber. Now of all the social networks, uh, I have the smallest following on YouTube. I do like two new videos a year, but that's the only one they watch. So they, they see videos of me interviewing them and they see videos of me. I, I did a feature for a while where I would tell the story behind a tweet. Like, here's the joke distilled down. Here's the big, long story behind that. And they, they love those. They love seeing pictures of themselves when I'd interview them when they were younger, it's kind of their history. I didn't, I didn't really look at it as building a family history when I did it, but now we've got this whole archive on there that the whole world can see, but it turns out the world really doesn't look at that part of it. Just my own kids do. Oh, what an
0: interesting twist. Yeah. So, so you have your, your, are uh, capturing the family events and things like that. Yeah.
1: Oh, awesome! yeah. And it, and they'll have, there'll be times of like, well, well, dad, how many can- pounds of candy did we get last year? And like, well, I don't know. But you know what? I bet I tweeted about it. So I have to go back and check my Twitter feed or check my newsletter. So I've, I have, I've created a record that would not have been there otherwise.
0: Yeah. Oh, what an interesting thing. And then
1: you're, you, you write extended articles now on Substack, right? You have a sub. Yes. Tell me. That's kind of my, uh, my bread and butter right now. I do a free newsletter every Monday. And a paid one every Friday with some other uh, content for paid subscribers in between, and that's actually the bulk of my writing income these days. And those are two thousand word articles where I really get to flesh it out. That's that's kind of what I wanted to write in the beginning—those big Dave Barry like columns, actually longer than what he used to do. And it, it's it's like the blog posts I did way when I was starting out when I only had fifty readers, but now I have you know tens of thousands of readers on there, and it's uh, it's really rewarding and it's really fulfilling. It's. It's made me a better writer too, just the, the idea that you have to write, you have a deadline. I mean that every every Sunday I wake up and it's like, all right, what happened this week? And if nothing happened, it's like it's time to be creative and make something out of nothing. And unlike tweets where it's like, okay, we can take the spirit of our family life and make up a joke. Like, I don't make up newsletters. Like this is this is real stuff. This is what's going on. So I end up, you know, doing things sometimes like, hey, here's a uh, here's an HGTV style home review of a Barbie dream house, you know, or of the Barbie Jeep, things like that. Or, you know, I make a, an epic saga about carving pumpkins. Like it's all real stuff with a twist of humor. And it, it really, it really uh, forces me to go that extra mile and kind of think outside the box. Yeah. Well, I, you wrote quite a tome on uh,
0: daylight savings, (laughs) a a personal, uh, a personal pet peeve of mine growing up, in Indiana, like yourself, we didn't used to, we used to have to deal with that. And, and now we have it even in Indiana. So, about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. And I, so I grew up just across the Illinois border. So actually for me when Indiana, so I hate the fact that anybody changes, but if somebody has to change, I'd rather we all change. So when Indiana didn't change and everybody else did, that was just chaos. You could never get to Indiana on time. Uh, Now, though, because Indiana touches more important states, like the corner that's up by Chicago is on central time and the corner in southern Indiana is on central time. And it's if you go down to like Holiday World, you go down there and the county line there is the line for the time zones. But your your phone does not respect county lines. It goes by towers. So it'll be driving back and your phone will update time and then Google goes off that. So if you try to Google is McDonald's open on the way home, it'll give you an answer. You don't know if it's accurate or not. You don't know which time zone it's going off. You don't know if your phone is lying to you. So in general, I'm kind of at war with time zones. Yes, it is. Uh, th- this is my privileged life. These are the things that bother me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm i 100% with you. So, I, so I'm a productivity guy. My my background mm-hmm. is all in continuous improvement and things. And the studies have shown that that we don't get any additional productivity we actually mm-hmm. use more energy. They did a study in Indiana because Indiana had <laughs> never done it before and after they use more energy. There's uh, I think it's 17% increase in traffic accidents on oh the following Monday. There's like a 23% increase in, in heart attacks mm-hmm. because of the, stra- I mean, there's all these things like, so why are we doing this? And then.
1: <laughs> I just, I've, I've never really met anyone who likes it and we, yeah, we do it. And it's, if you want more daylight like i'm fine with like setting the clock an hour one way or the other as long as we just leave it like i don't care what time the sun <laughs> rises just just keep the clocks the same
0: yeah now it it messes with us but you mentioned in your in your article that it messes with some other other beings that live in your house besides your children and your wife what uh, what's the impact on them
1: Oh yeah. So I have a, I have a dog and two potbelly belly pigs and uh, you know, they, they, they don't care what time it shows on the clock. They want to eat when they want to eat. So I've got to, I've got to be cognizant of that and cater to them. I'm, I'm the lowest person on the totem pole. here. I, I realized that one day cooking, uh, cooking dinner. I was, I was making stuff and then the dog started doing his little tap dance. He doesn't bark anymore. He's partially deaf. So I had to go feed him. And the pigs were grumpy and I had to go feed them. And the food was done. I fed all the kids and I fed my wife. <laughs> I looked at and I was like, I eat last. I'm supposed to be the head of the household here. And I eat absolutely last behind every other human being and every animal here. So that, that was a, a real wake up call for me. Oh,
0: that's funny. Now, so what's the origin of, I mean, a lot of people have dogs. Mm-hmm. I don't know too many people who have potbellied pigs and and even fewer that have two.
1: Well, was- I uh I was born on a pig farm. That was my dad's original career. So I didn't always want to be a comedy writer, but I've always had high aspirations. Before I wanted to be a comedy writer, I wanted the much more prestigious position of hog farmer. I wanted to be like him. He was a third-generation hog farmer. Uh, but when I was three, he hurt his back, and the pigs were having uh, the pigs didn't have babies that year. We sold feeder pigs, or we sold the the baby pigs so they could be raised. So we uh, so we sold the farm, and I I was the first guy in the family to not not raise pigs, and I was. So when I was younger, I was obsessed with them. But uh, when you're obsessed with pigs, people look at you uh, like you're a little strange. And I was a little strange to start with. So I, cu- I couldn't take that extra stigma. So I kind of hid it a little bit. And then uh, when I was old, when I was married, my wife knew about the pig thing. And she showed me these mini pigs online. I, was, I had no idea they existed. I was like, ho, ho ho! and then I found out there was somebody in Indiana who was breeding them. And, uh, I had just achieved my Twitter fame and what else is Twitter fame good for if not getting free pigs? <laughs> so I met my wife had forbidden me from spending money on a pig, but she didn't say anything about getting a free one. So I messaged this pig breeder and said, if, uh, can I, you know, I, can I tra- trade you social media promotion for a pig? And she agreed. She said, if you can get me likes on my Facebook page, I'll give you a pig. And I got the likes and I got the pig. And my wife went along with it because she can't she can't say no to a good deal. And free is a pretty good deal. So that's how we ended up with one. And then we thought she was lonely. So we ended up with the second one. The same pig breeder was uh, was shutting down. Pigs are a lot of work. And they gave gave uh, her to us for just for her vet cost. It was like a hundred bucks. And usually they're a lot more than that. So that's how we ended up with two.
0: Oh, very good. Very good story. And how long How long so, does
1: a pot pig live? They live uh, 20 years or so. It's that's a like- long time, but I... I gotta tell you, we've got guinea pigs too. Our honesty stuff. But like keeps going, my... yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was excited about each acquisition, but I am I am in the stage now where we are at max capacity and now we're gonna slowly start pushing things out. So I kind of figure that about the time my youngest grows up and leaves college, all the pets should be dead and there will be no more pets and there'll be no more children. It will just be my wife and I will be the only living things in this house. And the only poop I will clean up will be my own.
0: (laughs) Well, you mentioned, you mentioned your wife and she's often the, um, uh, the straight man
1: in your, in your stories, Mm -hmm. or at least the vision, the visual ones. Do you, now, do you draw those cartoons? I, I do. I mean, drawing is probably being a little generous with that, but yes, I, uh, I do all those stick figures and all that. I can't, I can't, I cannot imagine a professional artist attaching their name to that. They would, they would quit the profession in shame. Oh, no, I love it. So, so she's the
0: kind of the straight man for mm-hmm. the nomenclature there. But in in this, well, how does she? Uh, how does she feel about all of this?
1: you know, I've been writing about her since we were unofficial. I didn't, we weren't even boyfriend, girlfriend. I didn't know what to call her. I called her my associate back <laughs> in the early, early days. Okay. And, uh, I was back in college. So that's where I came up with the, the pen name of Lola for her. So I've written about her since the beginning, but yeah, I had, had she not been okay with me writing about our family? Not, none of this could have happened. I would have been dead in the water from square one, but she she was okay with it. And at first she didn't really want to be featured, but she didn't care what else I did. And over time she softened on that. So she pops up in pictures every now and then. And uh, she comes off as the straight man in the comics and everything. So you need a straight man. But truthfully, she's kind of my, my co-captain for anarchy, which is why our, our marriage works. When I, when I come up with a scheme, she's, she's more of an enabler than a roadblock. And she, she makes these things possible. Oh, okay. An enabler. That's, that's fascinating. All right. So tell me
0: this, tell me the story of how you said she was, uh, you were writing about her before she was even your girlfriend. Yeah. Well, that
1: was that just come just together? back in, what, what was that?
0: How'd that all come together? You guys meeting on and ultimately being more.
1: Oh yeah. We alone. just, we, we met uh, in college, like the second week of college right there and we have been together ever since. I mean, we're 38 now and we've been together since we were 18. So, you know, some mistakes you can't undo. Things discovered, so she's <laughs> she's been stuck with me. So yeah, I wrote for the student paper back then, and so I and I wrote on that blog, and so I'd write about stuff back then. And you know, you got to remember, I was doing comedy writing before I had kids, so I had to write about whatever else, or you know, so I wrote about being a college student or dating or whatever, whatever else was out there. Uh, so she she knew what I was getting into, and she figured I was. I was going to be a a poor newspaper reporter for my entire life, but uh, I guess she believed in me. She's the opposite of a gold digger. She signed up anyway, and uh, and here we are. Oh, that's a great story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now she also uh, does home re- home repairs. I saw she was doing the uh, dishwasher, or was it the washing machine?
1: So we, yeah, and I, again, I'm I, I'm secure enough in my masculinity to say that she did that. Yeah, I, I, but I I do a lot of the outside stuff. I do the landscaping, but I don't like fixing things i just you know when i when I have a problem with the kids and i have a problem with the animal you can reason with a living being to some degree but an object there's no reasoning with it it can just be broken it can just be stubborn and there's nothing you can do about it so i, I have very little patience for that so when it comes to assembling ikea furniture or anything like that she's our go-to person uh with the dishwasher though um that, that one was more happenstance it, it went out before and uh, somebody had to go in the basement and flip switches. And while I was flipping switches, she was upstairs looking at it. And eventually I, I, I we couldn't figure it out. It wouldn't come back on. I called an electrician and uh, he told me what he did. There's two wires that had to be twisted back together. So this time she went down there because I didn't know what it looked like. She went down there the first time. She got it out, but I was able to tell her, hey, the electrician said it's these two wires. So I was helpful. But yes, she did the repair work. She was the one down there on the ground using the tools. I was the one handing the tools. Uh, but you know what? She's she's got small hands, so she's she's built <laughs> for that sort I, of thing. I, that's, that's that's why this relationship I, I, works.
0: Oh, oh, I love it. I love it. Oh, yeah. So uh, uh, I I can kind of relate. I mean, we we've just uh, 41 years for my wife and I, and, and there's there's certain things that uh, that she does, and and since uh, with the advent of the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. She'll often fix something before I got home from work, which I was, I was grateful, grateful for, uh, because I was an engineer and I was fixing things all day long. So it was, it was kind of nice to have somebody to, uh, to help out. But I thought that was, uh, a, another glimpse into, uh,
1: into your self-deprecating humor. I love it. Uh, that you, yeah, I am, I, I am lucky to have her and I'm lucky that she likes some of those things that I absolutely hate. And that's, you, you need somebody like that because I, Otherwise you're, you know, you're calling somebody to fix everything and man, that gets expensive fast if anybody will even show up. So yes, I, uh, I am very grateful for her technical aptitude and her tiny, tiny hand.
0: Yeah. Now you had some collaboration then too on the book. So you've got a, uh, an illustrator and I, I thought that was interesting because you do, uh, for my, mm-hmm. for my limited talent, uh, you are, you are an artist and your drawings are great. Uh, but I can see that you engaged uh, someone to help you with the illustrate, and they are wonderful. They're yep. terrific yep. illustrations in here.
1: That's uh, Sophie Corrigan. She's in the based in the UK, and she does wonderful drawings. She's got a lot of other. Uh, she's got a, a very uh, cutesy, whimsical vibe to her drawings that uh, that really I think resonates in in children's books. Uh, So I was delighted because I wouldn't have been able to pull off the the book the way that she did. It would not be the same book. And a lot of the humor in there is visual humor, just inspired by my words. So uh, she took what I did and made it 10 times better just by illustrating it. I think you could have had a different illustrator come in and had that turn out to be a completely different book.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And so uh, being UK, you guys had to do this
1: online, I assume. Back and forth. Yes. Yeah. How- I have actually never met her in person. I'm I'm sure she probably does not want to meet me in person. Sure <laughs> yeah. <but> we, <laughs> we yeah. We collaborated just fine by email. And it, you know, I really illustrators get the short end of the stick. Cause I wrote that book in two hours. Like it was, you know it doesn't take that long to type 700 words. I'm a fast typer. Then it goes to her and she's got to take spend three months drawing. It's like, oh man. And this, I apologize for creating all of this work for you, but I am, I am very glad that she did that work. It, it turned out wonderfully.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful book. I mean, it, it, people can see it. I encourage you, like you said, to, to check it out for the illustrations as much as, uh, as the value of the story. And then so what prompted you to, to, to go into this? Cause it's this very different than your science fiction or your others. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. My, my agent suggested it oh. and, and I, I love the idea. He's kind of pushed me into, you know, whatever's possible. I've uh, you know, I, I wrote the the nonfiction books. I wrote several of those in a row and then I wrote, I, I wrote a workbook for kids and then, you know, I've got this now. Um, I, I spent so much time writing about kids. It, it seemed time to write for kids. You know, I. I know what resonates with my own children. I thought, I, you know, and I see the books they read. I see the books they like. I thought, why, why can't I do that? Why can't I put out a story uh, that would get through to them? And when I wrote it, uh, you know, my youngest would have been four, like she would have been, you know, bam in the target audience for this. And now (laughs) she's almost eight. These, (laughs) these books take a very long time to come out. It turns out, I think it it was almost three years uh, from start to finish uh, because it's just, it's just a long production process. Uh, but yeah, I was, I'm glad that, that it is out, even if they are a little too old for it, you know, they've, they've got friends or they've got, you know, younger cousins and siblings and all that who, uh, who, who can still relate to it. So I'm glad it's out there. It's now our, our default, uh, gif when a friend has a baby. So I'm sure they're <laughs> not thrilled about that, but I got extra copies. <laughs> That's fun. Oh, three years though. Wow. Really? That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. This is so. So my other ones I had mostly done with smaller publishers, and this one was uh, with Nancy Paulson. She has a imprint through Random House, so this was the this was the big one. And I think that the largest issue with it is just there was a line of hundreds of books in front of me to get to that printing press. So I don't think I don't think anybody was slaving away for three solid years. I think they were picking at it here and there, and I think it was more just hey, this is this is the biggest you know place in town. And your pterodactyl book probably is not their top priority. So they, they did a great job making it. They did a great job promoting it, but, uh, I had to eat some humble pie and wait for my spot in line.
0: Oh, okay. All right. And then, um, do you have any
1: thoughts about another one? I would, uh, I would be delighted to, uh, to write another children's book. I've, I've, uh, emailed some ideas back and forth. There's nothing in the works for that right now, but I'm, uh, I'm always brainstorming ideas. Uh, children's books are great because you can you can come up with the idea and like write the whole thing and they can give you a no and you're just done right there you don't have to you don't have to spend a year writing it and then get that no and be like oh boy i i only have so much lifetime left i don't know how many more tries i have in me um right now though the the next book i'm under contract for is a sequel to the chosen 12 so the chosen 12 was my uh my sci-fi book uh and uh the the sequel to that is called the gods of spencer island and that should be out next year so that i'm I should be diligently, uh, working on the edits for that right now, but instead I am procrastinating in every way humanly right. possible <laughs> and stay, including, <laughs> including coming on here and self-promoting on podcasts.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So that, that explains your, your willingness to come on. the <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have to remember that if I want to catch uh, catch you again, I got to catch you at that critical moment of procrastination. All right. And so, uh, there's the science fiction that's, I mean, that's another diversion or, it, mm-hmm. urgent thing uh tell me uh
1: tell me about why you went into that and i've always loved science fiction i was a big star wars fan growing up and as i got a little older i liked star trek quite a bit too and i always thought it'd be cool to someday get to the point where i could write that i'm comedy writing was always my first passion but i i always had a few science fiction ideas bouncing around in my head and like i don't know if most people have this i think most writers have you get that one idea like this this is it this is what i'd be known for i want this storyline and I kicked it around and kicked it around and kicked it around forever. And finally, uh, at the start of the pandemic, I got it all written out. And, uh, thanks for that extra time, you know, the silver lining there. And, uh, I was lucky enough to find a, a publisher rebellion books in the UK again, and they, uh, and they published it and they liked it well enough to, to go for the sequel. And that one was fun too, because it's still got kids, but they're kids who are, you know, aren't really kids, they're old souls uh but you know it's it's just another parenting take so i've got uh parenting in the zombie apocalypse and here i've got kids raised by you know robots at the end of humanity on a distant moon and it's so just a, a slightly different angle every every possible scenario for parenting i think has now been addressed <laughs> okay
0: and you've got uh the second one's coming out uh when you when you finish it right uh but- yes and i, I
1: I don't know the date on that and it might change if I, I fail to meet some deadlines okay. here. We'll see, but I think it's tentatively scheduled for sometime next year. Okay.
0: And is that, is there going to be
1: more of those or do you see that as a.
0: I will keep thing?
1: going until they physically stop me. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I, you know, I, I say that, um, but it, it, it gets harder too. Uh, the, you know, I, I still have, I have a day job and then I write these, these new, uh, these Substack articles, you know, each one of those is 2000 words. You figure that adds up to, you know, another hundred thousand words a year. That's like another book there on top of everything on top of having kids and, and that. So I, I used to say, yeah, I want to write all the books I can, but as I, as I uh, get older, I realize you know, you only, you only have so many hours in the day. You only have so many years of your life. You got to kind of pick and choose. So I would like to to keep writing these books. Uh, but at the same time, I've got to keep things in balance. You know, I've started prioritizing uh, like board games. Like I want to I have a night every week where I get together with friends and we do this. You know, that's something I want to prioritize. or I want to prioritize a date night with my wife every week. You know, just start building those things in it. For a while there, when I was coming up, when I was building an audience, it was like I was either at work or I was writing and that was it. Uh, and you well, you can do that, but you miss out on a lot. So I've, I've kind of had to take a step back and figure out, you know, how do I manage my time and how do I manage my priorities? And, uh, and that is, that is my current balancing act. That's my current struggle. And that's why I think right lately, I think I've been killing it as a dad. I think I've been killing it as a husband and I have been probably falling a little bit short as an author. So that's, that's where we're at right now. And that's why this deadline is, is getting so close. Oh, that's great. Well, so, so let's go a
0: little deeper in that because, uh, one of the questions that I get as someone who, who helps people live into their Ikigai is, you know, how can I, how can I live my Ikigai in what I, in what I do and every day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they think about their job and it sounds to me like you you said you have a, a day job and, mm-hmm. and yet this is a creative outlet for you and you're, you're connecting with your family. How do you bring yourself, your real self into all of those different things?
1: I think it comes down to worldview. So whether it's interacting with my kids or my wife or my friends or whether it's interacting with an audience on the internet, I try to bring that same that same unique perspective, that same humor, that same wry smirk. I mean, that's that's kind that's the that's the common element between all of those. Where if if I'm amusing myself, then maybe I can amuse somebody else, and then at the we can we can have fun together. And that's that's what I'm I'm going for. I want I want to enjoy the moment, even the bad moments. That's a lot of what my Twitter account is. You know, here's this ridiculous, stressful moment, and here's why it's funny. You know, drawing out that humor from unexpected places. And that's and that's how, you know, accounts about, you know, kids making horrible messes can be funny. That's how, you know, those longer stories about, you know, rotten pumpkins and pigs run amok, you know, how that can be funny or how even sometimes, you know, kids fighting robots on that alien move, how ah, that can be funny. You can, you can draw out the same absurdist humor. Really the setting doesn't matter. It's, it's the perspective that matters. And that's what I try to bring to it. Well, oh, that's an awesome, awesome way to look at things. I like that a
0: lot. And, um, you, we, we talked before we, we started recording
1: uh, a little bit about running and cross country and is, mm-hmm. that's
0: in your background as well
1: yes i uh i ran up through college i i shouldn't have i was there on an academic scholarship but i just i i loved running or i told myself i did and so i ran all through college and i was uh i was a walk-on i was our slowest guy but we never had more than seven runners so i was always like on the official team um and it compared when i look back like compared to all of humanity i was I could I could break five minutes for a mile. I could hold a 550 pace for six miles. Like I was I was fast, but like compared to other 18 year olds who ran 10 miles a day, I was very very slow. I was a long way behind the rest of them. And uh, every year at the end of the season, you know, we have seven guys and five score and every every year at the end of the year the most important meet uh one or two guys in front of me would just fall apart get hurt give up something and here I'd come chugging in, in like literal last place, and I would be our fifth place scorer and just single handedly sink our team. Oh, but, but hey, had I not been there, we wouldn't have even, we would have been just disqualified. Yeah. So I guess, I guess I have that to my name. Oh, so you scored. You, so you scored. Uh, that's, I, I scored, and it would be a disaster if I did. A- anytime I scored, you, you could You're guarantee drunk. we were getting screamed at on the bus ride home. It was not a happy occasion. Oh, that's funny.
0: I, I love a, a big, running Faye and my daughter, I, uh, ran mm-hmm. cross country. It was, was very, very, very good. But now she, she did the opposite of you. She, she didn't run because she had an academic scholarship to to focus on her school. But, um, I think I would have done what you did and, and run. Uh, but, and you, do you still run? Do you incorporate that in your life?
1: now? I find that I can no longer run now. Maybe if I kept up with it, if it, I, I have a bit of an all or nothing personality. Like if I went out and ran a mile or two a couple times a week, I could probably get back into running shape. Uh, but I don't do that. My knees have taken a pounding. I put on a lot of miles in my younger days. And now I do, I do a lot of resistance training, but I don't run. But once a year, so I've, there's a running club back in my hometown and they have the, the four big races a year. And there's one of them I really like. And my my friends and I used to use it as a homecoming. Like we'd all come back for this one race. And over time they've drifted away, but now my own kids are getting older and they're starting to run. So I go back with them and, uh, I tell myself, it's like, okay, I could, I could train for this. I could put in the miles and then my knees are going to hurt every day, or I could just go one day, run one time a year and, and just take all my pain at once. And that's what I've done two years in a row. And to my credit at 38 years old, without running any of the other 364 days of the year, I roll out of bed and I run a seven mile race and I I come in respectable. I mean, like out of a, I mean, it's 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 a bad time but i'm pretty far up in the field compared to everybody else but afterwards like i can't walk like like the first time i did that i limped for two or three days and this last time i I could barely walk for a week i'm like oh my gosh i gotta i need to i need to reassess i've either got to start training moderately and build up to this or i need to give it up altogether. so we are we are coming to that inflection point where i have to be an adult and actually Make a decision so I don't hurt myself. Oh,
0: that's that's great. Yeah, I, uh, Dave Griffin is a is an author who uh, writes about writing or running rather, and he has a book called The Last PR. Uh, oh, and uh, it's it's a very good book. But it it I think all runners reach a point where this it's just not going to be what it had been, uh, and and you've got to accept that either for you know what what it's been for you or what it what it used to be, as opposed to because. Like, like yourself, I I would love a um, uh, five minute mile, seven minute mile, maybe even uh, over extended period of time, a nine minute mile, but <laughs> <laughs> a seven minute mile, maybe if I was downhill and with a tailwind yeah. and a bear chasing me, maybe.
1: And that's, you know, I, I really, I wish my knees were better than what they were. I, I like the runner's high. I like the Zen of when you hit a pace and you're just going and going like the feeling when you get back and you know that you completed a huge distance i mean those it's a good feeling i i, I did like all of that uh what i didn't like is that if you're going to go out running and be a serious runner i mean that's a that's a big block of time that you gotta you gotta carve out i've i've got a friend who's ser- who does it seriously still and man he's it's like half his life and you could do look at it too I, the, the people my age who are great runners now none of them ran in college almost none of them ran in high school their people were like you know they're 30 and they pick it up and they've got fresh knees and it's it's new to them and everything's a pr and they're amazing And you've got people like me who like you know we we took it so seriously early on and burned ourselves out and it's like you know no matter what i do at this point in my life i'm not going to come in within minutes of the miles i used to do and you gotta you gotta really take a look at it and say what am i running for because i'm not i'm not running for PRs. so what's the what's the goal here
0: yeah Oh, I like that because it's, it does, um, uh, so I'm one of those latter people. I ran in the Marine Corps. Okay. That's not really running. That's like mm-hmm. faster. Order. I mean, there's no mm-hmm. technique. There's, it's just yeah. idiocy really. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I picked it up when my daughter started running in high school and, uh, I had shoulder surgery. And they told me yeah. I needed to do something to get the blood flow to the tendons to help them heal. And, oh. and so I do something brisk, I think is the uh, explicit directions I got. And so I was, I was walking, you know, fast. And I thought, well, I could run, I could run for like a minute and walk for four. And I, just, I sort of mm-hmm. did that and, and uh, ended up not run marathons, things like that. But uh, yeah, so, so much, much later, like early, early twenties, nothing. And then at fifty, I started running again. Oh wow! So um, and and now I do it. Although, like I said, I'm an avid, if not fast, runner, but I uh, <laughs> enjoy it. I, but I love the connection and, and like what you were you're saying there. It's it's we can't do everything, and so when we mm-hmm. do, it's like what's what's you know feeding our soul and what's mm-hmm. our priority. And and I I can't even imagine like I said the time for running with with little kids. Uh, we have our grandkids once in a while. Mm-hmm. And even with them, they sort of interfere with my running schedule and, and I put them ahead of the running schedule. But, uh, uh, I can only imagine with four, uh, four young daughters that, uh, it would be tough to do that, but there's lots of ways to live mm-hmm. out your Ikigai and, uh, and the values and the things you enjoy.
1: Yeah. And I've kind of got a new standard for what I keep in my life and what I get rid of. And it's just, do I watch the clock when I'm doing it? Ooh and I just, it, so I I got to the point where it's like, I can't, I can't wait till the kids are grown to, to start doing things or to start prioritizing stuff. I've got to, you know, I, I got to live my life now. I got to, you know, test out hobbies, do different things. And, and so for a while, I joined a lot of things. I spread my, my claws kind of wide. And then after a while, after a couple of years, I started looking at it and thought, you know, well, which of these things do I actually like? And which of these things am I doing just because I signed up for them? And that was, that was my standard. If it was something that I, uh, if I was watching the clock to get out of there, then I, I, I didn't do it anymore. So I did martial arts for a bit, just like a class at night and ended up cutting that out. I tried uh ultimate frisbee. It wasn't quite running. It was in between. I mean, it was running, but from shorter bursts, but I was, man, was I checking the clock? I was getting tired. And that it was like, not going to do that anymore. But then when I if I go to the gym and lift weights for, for an hour, I never watch the clock. If I'm playing board games with my family or with friends, I never watch the clock. Or I'm hanging out with my wife watching movies, I don't watch the clock. So things like that. It's like, what what do I actually enjoy and get lost in the flow of? Or like when I'm writing a newsletter, you know, you, you sit down and you get started. It doesn't doesn't matter how long it takes. You just write till it's done and you get in the flow of it. So those are, those are the things I focus on now. And over time, I've had to scale back on things. So I used to do three daily web comics. I used to I used to tweet a lot more than I do, and I've kind of had to look at that as well and figure out, well, which of these things is actually generating an audience? Which of these things is actually generating income? So if you compare what I write today to what I what I wrote five years ago, it's pretty different. So I've I've had to really refocus down on the things that uh things that are important to me and the things that get a result as opposed to the things that are just kind of there. Yeah. So do I watch
0: the clock while I'm doing it? That's a that's a great one. I love that. Uh, I'm gonna have to, have to write that down. <laughs> that is a that is a great one. I, I think that would have been my the final five years of my corporate career. Every every day, yeah, <laughs> it was me every day at
1: school too. Is that right?
0: So. Uh, yeah, yeah. You weren't uh, you weren't into school?
1: No, I was I was very good at school, but I would. I, it's the difference between being good at school and, 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 uh, being good at or enjoying learning. I guess I enjoy learning on my own. I don't like being graded. I don't like being evaluated and, you know, schools, uh, you get down to it. It's a, it's a game. There's a system. Certain things are graded. Certain things aren't you focus in on, on what matters and, uh, you know, you ignore the rest. And so, yeah, I just, you know, I still, I still have nightmares today about school. And I was, I was, I excelled at it. I went to college on a full ride academic scholarship and I graduated valedictorian. So I, I mean, I, I knew how to do this stuff, but at the same time I got out and I said, I'm never setting foot in a classroom again. I just, I cannot do this. And to this day, when my kids ask me for homework, help with their homework, Oh, I thought I was, I thought I was out of this. And it, it drives me crazy now that they're still in that same system. So I am now, now, my wife, on the other hand, loved school, enjoyed school. She didn't get the kind of grades I did, but she actually had fun. So maybe, maybe her approach was uh, a little better, a little healthier, and a little more balanced. And my my all or nothing approach was uh, not the way to go with school. Yeah, do you find uh, do you find your daughters drift toward your your way or your wife's way somewhere in between? I think they drift towards my wife's way more. I was. I was more of a perfectionist in school and they, uh, they seem to be more go with the flow, which is good. It, it drives my, uh, my perfectionist tendencies crazy, but I just, I, I look back and I look at all the things I was worried about and now knowing what I know now, how little they mattered. I almost wish if I did school over again, that I just like first semester of college, I had just gotten a bad grade in just like one class and like, all right, well, your GPA is wrecked anyway, you know, do what you can stay above the scholarship line and just have fun. Like it would have, man, I could, if I could go back now, I would have done those four years so differently. <laughs> and, uh, I would have had a very good time. And, uh, it turns out that, uh, school really didn't have much to do with anything of what I do. I mean, they didn't teach me how to be a comedy writer. It didn't have anything to do with my day job. So it all, uh, I, I think I could have afforded to spend four years having a lot of fun. I, I will not be telling my kids, that, but uh, <laughs> yes, that was the lesson I took away. Oh, so are you a recovering, I'm a recovering
0: perfectionist is how I describe myself. Are you, are you in recovery or still?
1: Yes. I mean, well, especially the kind of writing I do. Um, So I'm, I'm a one man show for like those newsletters. I put it out and, you know, 50,000 people read that article and, you know, they're going to, they're going to tell you if you have typos and stuff. And it's like, I don't, I don't have an editorial team. There are no copywriters. It's just me banging this out in a day, start to finish. And I, yeah. I do the best I can. And I used to, uh, it used to really bother me. It's like, oh no, they're going to find one thing. They're going to nail me for it. And if one person finds it, a thousand people are going to find it. You know, I would, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with like tightness in my chest. Like, oh, did I do that thing in the newsletter? Like the morning it went out, but now I send out two of them in a week. And I just, uh, I've learned, I've learned to calm down about it. It's like, this is, this is par for the course. If this one doesn't hit, there'll be another one. There'll be more mistakes in the future. Uh, and especially because you, with, with comedy writing, you realize there's no, uh, there's no president of English. It's not like French where there's like a council that says what's right and wrong. Like all the grammar rules are just made up. It's like what's commonly accepted sort of, but really nobody can tell you you're wrong. So I use, you know, I, I break a lot of rules that we were taught in school just because they're not, they're not really rules. Your words are a tool. They're there to get a message across and I, I use them how I need them. Oh,
0: I love that too. Wow. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. The, I, I would guess, yeah, with comedy, you could, uh, you could go a little, I, I have a, a pretty big following on LinkedIn and I get the same sort of thing. And I had to, I had to tell myself to the point where I finally said, there's always a typo. I, I wrote a mm-hmm. post one day. There's always a typo. I leave one in there for you for the <laughs> one. And then if anybody finds one, this some, I've had people send me to oh, found it. <laughs> good a, a game, you know, and, uh, oh, but yeah, yeah. Between that. And I think the automated, uh, yeah. Self-correct. I, I get I mm-hmm. beat up by self-correct a lot. You know, I type something and it, it decides it's going to be something else. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I get it too, because I, um, when I first draft my newsletters, I just talk it out loud. I've, I've become comfortable enough in the style that I just kind of narrate it, start to finish into my phone. Uh, but it doesn't do well with homophones like slay, like killing and Santa's slay. That was one I messed up the other week. And then so I speak it into my phone and then I do some, I do a one rep of editing on the computer. And then I do, I have my phone read it back to me so I can catch where I missed words and things. And that misses the homophones again. So it made it all the way through. And uh, you know that, so I, I get dinged for that. I, I look very unintelligent sometimes, but it is. You no, know, these are the tools I use. That's what makes me efficient. So I just, uh, I accept the price of that. And ultimately eh, nobody's too offended by it. I think people who are sticklers for grammar, I think they secretly like it when they find typos, they get a, they get a hold one over on you. I used to take it personally, but now I look at it. It's like, you know what, this is, this is their fun. Let them get their kind of enjoyment out <laughs> of it and just move on. Oh, that's great. So you, uh, you dictate your, your articles. Is that the that's, yes, that's- so it just you know it depends on the platform. So I tried dictating. Uh, it depends on the kind of dictation. I find that voice to text works very well. I find that voice to a file that's later translated does not work very well at all. That was kind of a disaster with the first draft of this uh, sequel that I did. Uh, but yeah, for I find that if I do voice to text, I don't get slowed down. Of I just type that sentence and I need to fix it. I just I just go and it that way. I can get a 2000 word article on the page in an hour. You know, that's an amazing speed for me for a first draft. And just for, uh, for writers out there at some point, production speed does matter. Cause again, you only have so many hours in the day. And if it takes you 10 hours, what it takes me to do in one hour, like it's going to take you, you know, 10 times longer to put out that book. So you just, you have to, you have to zero in and get efficient. So yeah, the voice to text has been a good tool for me and also that app that reads it back to me, uh, so I can check it and do the proofreading a lot faster. And then now that my final proofreading method, I do uh, an audio version of those newsletters and, um, I go through. And so I read it again with a, with as much emphasis as I can. I know I still come out sounding like a robot, but I try, I really try. And, uh, when I go through that, I mean, then, and, you know, I missed an A or a the, or whatever. A lot of times an end gets turned into just an A, things like that. i I can usually catch them by that, so I think my rate of typos has gone down through all these different tools. Oh, that's
0: fascinating. So, what um, do you have any particular apps you'd recommend for
1: people? So, the uh, I do all my writing in Google Docs, and I, I can do that right on my phone for voice to text. Uh, the the one where that reads it back out. There's a bunch of them out there. I use one. I think it's called Read Aloud or the at symbol aloud, one or the other. And then for uh, for recording, I just use Audacity usually when I'm recording with myself, and that works that works uh, fairly well. I actually, if you uh, if you are interested in starting a newsletter or a Substack, I I really recommend you do an audio version of your newsletter because like mine are long. People don't always want to read two thousand words, but they'll listen to two thousand words while they're doing something else. So it gives me a chance to practice voice acting. It gives me a chance to practice proofreading and it opens up the stuff to a little bit wider audience. And it also personalizes it. Uh, People, you know, they read your words that there's a degree of separation there, but if they hear you saying it in your voice, it it brings you more into the story. And if you're trying to build a connection with an audience, uh, that can be a useful piece of it.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's very good advice. Yeah. I, uh, I started my Substack and I, I do audio. And Mm -hmm. at some point, uh, I don't know why it was, it wasn't obvious at the beginning, but they're like, that's you? That's like, <laughs> what did you think? I hired someone to, do,
1: to read a yes, I thought, <laughs> okay. At first, I focused so hard on being precise that somebody messaged me and they meant very well. They're like, you're so funny. Why do you, why do you have that robot read it for me? I was like, what? No. How, me? Come on. So you're, you're in good company. I'm this. <laughs> that's great
0: i had a uh, i had a similarly uh failed uh, broadcast career when i when i started i was uh i started when i was sixteen I was in radio when i was sixteen oh. um and then went to college for it and was so uh so down about like like the um the one professor I had in the broadcasting class he said that f m stations can only broadcast at five thousand watts right and then he goes on and i raised my hand because I was currently working at a station, an FM station that was 50,000 watts. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, and he goes, well, you're mistaken, but, you know, carry on. And I just, <laughs> I uh, I did kind of did what you, you said you wish you had done. I sort of uh, left that class and didn't actually drop it and got an F and ruined my, my GPA probably forever and, and uh, my my college career went down from there so <laughs> <laughs> but i was in radio for a long time and uh, then i uh, i left that to i joined the marines because if it don't give you any idea what what radio is like it was a saner life being a marine than in radio. oh no so, uh, yeah it's it's pretty crazy business but it has <clears throat> excuse me afforded me the uh the carryover skill right so like you you did writing it wasn't mm-hmm. journalism, but, in, and that's, that's something I try and help people, uh, understand too. A lot of the things that we've done are still valuable to us, even if they didn't end up as a career, or even if they didn't end up being our lifelong work, mm-hmm. it's still a skill or, or some insight that we carry with us. And so, yeah, I, so I, I, but yeah, I got the, uh, that's, that's you I'm like, yeah, no, that's, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so so the robot, I I uh, I have read your, I, I love your your written work. I have not listened to the audio yet, uh, but I will make an effort to do that.
1: Well, you can you can skip it. All my friends give me a very hard time about it. I think it's getting better. I I really do. But then the other day, they're like, we were driving, like, we'll go ahead and turn it on. We'll listen to it together. I was like, no, we're we're not doing not... do that. We're not going to do that <laughs> oh, at all. Oh, that's <laughs> oh man, that's
0: funny. So yeah, who needs who needs enemies, right? do you go exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh great so any other thoughts about uh again i i love the way you've you you've blended your 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 passion your heart your talents into into all these different aspects of your life and now you you've branched this up are there other things that you'd recommend people might try uh similarly
1: and those are the those are the big ones i mean just uh there's so much you can do uh, while still having you know a grown-up job. I think there's a, a belief out there, especially among young people, they're like, if you have a passion, you have to go do this passion, and that's it. And I just, I don't think that's true at all. I think you can go and get a regular nine-to-five job and still have a passion. I don't think your job always has to be a, have be exactly that passion. I mean, it helps if it is, but I think for a lot of us, sometimes you just got to pay the bills and put a roof over your head. And then you've got your passion on the side. And sometimes, you know, you, you work at it, you build up an audience and you, it becomes another job. It becomes an income that can be there. Uh, but I think if you go into it thinking I can only do a job if my job and my passion are exactly the same thing, I think you've automatically limited yourself. And I think you've put yourself on a timer. So I think a lot of times passion jobs are the jobs that don't pay very much because everybody wants to do fine. them because they're your passion. And so you get in there and you can't make a living and you think, well, I guess I got to give that up. No more passion for me for the rest of your life. Whereas if you just got the regular job and you kept that passion, but it starts as a hobby or it starts as a part-time job on the side, you can keep going forever and they can't starve you out. And you can still, you can be 60, you can be 80 and you can still be doing that. You can still have that thing you really enjoy and draw meaning from. And it can still be right there. Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right. Because people, people... Oh, I, I've got to either wait for it, or it's mm-hmm. got to be everything, as opposed to mm-hmm. what I think you in in your life you did, which was begin to iterate on it, right, and and uncover different aspects of it. Because I would guess when you were first starting, let's say twenty two, whatever, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have described your life as it is today. Fat belly pigs, maybe aside. Uh, <laughs>
1: No, it it did shape up very differently. But I mean, the, the common element through it is I ultimately, starting back, you know, when I was 16, wanted to be a comedy writer, I wanted to write. And that's taken a lot of different forms all along the way. And sometimes it was the main job, sometimes it was a hobby, and sometimes it was a side job. And now it's a, a thing I get interviewed about. And uh, but I mean, the whole time that passion was there, that passion was writing. It just wasn't always the income. In fact, it wasn't really an income until very recently here. So yeah, definitely... Don't give up on your passion. Just don't make it your only thing. Make it, make it, make your life support that passion, but make, make sure you nail that support part. So, you know, you don't, uh, <laughs> you don't end up back living with your parents.
0: Have a roof, eat, things like that. Yes. And then, exactly. and then <laughs> 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 I think that's excellent advice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. Well, James, it has been such a pleasure talking with you and uh, uh, connecting with. With your journey and, and uh, your journey of Ikigai, and again, I, I just love this book. I highly recommend people read it. Is there a place where, um, where you recommend they get it? I'm assuming Amazon is where I got mine.
1: Yes. If you, if you go to my uh, website, explodingunicorn.com, you can find a few different retailers. There's, a, there, there's an indie bookstore that has signed copies, uh, Second Flight Books in Lafayette, Indiana. If you order online through their website, they'll send you a signed copy if they still have any in stock. Uh, so, and it's always good to support your indie bookstores. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and then uh, if, they, if they can't find those, if they get on your
1: Christmas card list, I understand you still have a few around. Is there right? if, <laughs> if, if you manage to get I, your Christmas uh, card my, list. My, uh, my pile is rapidly dwindling. Too many people are having babies. Hmm, okay. Well, I, I do want you to consider this character as
0: a, as a, for the sequel.
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: it's got an elaborate name.
1: She has an elaborate name. It's Pterodactyl. My, That's my, my, granddaughter. My, my nine-year-old. My nine-year-old's favorite toy is a brown dog and he is named a uh, brown dog. Oh. So a, a similar, similar name scheme. Oh, your nine-year-old will get along very well with, with my five-year-old granddaughter who loves, uh, she's minimalist when it comes to naming. So it was, I'm, I'm honored that she parted with it tonight. So you could do this podcast. Yeah. Did you have to steal it away, or did she volunteer to let you have custody overnight? I
0: told her that I'd spoken with you and that I was going to talk with you and, and interview her to the degree that she can understand that. But she was very excited about that. And she actually asked me if I was going to show you. Oh. So she's, she's going to be thrilled about it. And, uh, and I've been thrilled about it. It's been, it's been awesome to meet you. Um, and, just wish you the very best on all your endeavors and uh, continue to share these, these insights and, and encouraging people to, to go for, like you said, their passions and things and, and live their life and blend it entirely in their, you know, harmoniously in every aspect of their life. So again, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care.